Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Question. How does one face death? How does one face death? Of course, none of us will really know until we reach that point. Isn't that true? For most of us who are believers, who are Christians, we like to think that there would be some great sense of expectation as we anticipate crossing over the bar. We might also experience some measure of relief in in the fact that our struggle here is finally coming to an end. And we might also experience some sadness because of those that we may be leaving behind. There's a, a mixture of kinds of responses in varying degrees, I think, that we could anticipate. But the bottom line is how we face death, this is very important, how we face death depends largely on what we believe and how we have lived, how we've lived our life. What truths, what principles have we lived by? The ancient Greeks and Romans have left us with many, many stories of their own leaders and their own heroes as they face death. And almost without exception, when you read those accounts, these people were calm and and, and dispassionate in their final hours. Why? Because you see, it was their fate. It was their fate, F-A-T-E. Socrates is the classic example. Socrates, who was condemned to drink hemlock as his means of execution. The story of his death has him surrounded by his followers, and he's joking. He's casually tossing off ironic one-liners, if you will. By contrast, as recorded in the Jewish books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, when Jews wrote accounts of the deaths of their major figures and heroes, they didn't make them cool and dispassionate and removed like the Greeks. Instead, their accounts and stories of these people being hot-blooded, fearless, and they praised God as they're being cut to pieces by their persecutors. But nothing in either of those traditions, the ancient Jewish tradition or the ancient Greek and Roman tradition, nothing in those traditions instead resembles the portrayal that Mark gives us of Jesus' final hours as he faced death. So I want to pick it up with you, have you read with me. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 32 to 36. This is Jesus in the garden. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and 
Keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Here we see Jesus just hours before his execution. He opens his heart to his disciples. He opens his heart to his Father in heaven. And he opens his heart to you and I as we read the gospel and every Christian who's ever read the gospel of Mark. And here Jesus lays bare his struggles, his agony, his fears about facing what he will have to face. He turns to his father and pleads, is there a way this cup can be taken from me? Is there any way I can be let off the hook? Is there any way I can get out of this mission? In Matthew's account, Matthew has Jesus repeating this request three times. In Luke's account, Luke has it this way, and being in anguish, he prayed, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The writer to the Hebrews has this mark. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. You could see him in the garden, those, those accounts, he's crying out to his father. Let this cup pass from me. Up to this point, Jesus has been completely in control, hasn't he? He's been absolutely unflappable. Nothing seems to have surprised him so far. He always knew what was going on. Nothing jarred him. But all of a sudden, we read that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Deeply distressed and troubled. The Greek word translated deeply distressed actually means astonished. If you go back and read Mark's gospel up to this part, Jesus has been absolutely unflappable, not astonished by anything. But here suddenly, something he sees, something he realizes, something he experiences stuns the eternal Son of God. Stuns him. Not only is he deeply distressed, he's also troubled, Mark says. The word means literally to be overcome with horror. I don't know if we could possibly understand. Many of us have seen and experienced things that give rise to a sense of shock and astonishment, but overcome with horror? Who of us have been overcome with horror? That was what Jesus was experiencing. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His anguish in the garden is enough to kill him. His struggle is absolutely unique. 
not only in the ancient accounts of the deaths of prominent figures, but also among those of the church's history. We have many, many accounts of Christian men and women who being killed for their faith, thrown to animals, cut to pieces, burned at the stake. Fox's Book of Martyrs contains many accounts. The early church fathers. And it appears that many of them, when you read those accounts, many of them faced their deaths more calmly than Jesus did. Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna is present-day Izmir in Turkey. And he was believed to be a disciple of John in the first half of the second century. It was near the end of his life when he was 86 years old. He was taken before a magistrate and told he would be burned at the stake. The magistrate told him he had one last chance to recant and reject Christianity and avoid execution. Here was his reply. The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. So calm, so cool, so collected. Two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford, England. They were tied side by side when the fire was lit at their feet. And you would expect that they'd be screaming and hollering. No. Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. Wow. Wow. Why is it that many of Jesus' followers died better than Jesus, if you follow what I'm saying? Of course, Jesus must have been facing something that Polycarp, something that Ridley and Latimer, Latimer were not facing. Something that none of the other martyrs ever faced. Something happened in that garden. Something happened in that garden. Jesus saw something. He felt something. He sensed something. And it shocked, shocked him. The unshockable, eternal Son of God. It shocked him. What is it? What is it? He was facing something beyond physical torment. He was facing something beyond physical death, something so much worse. What was it? Even in the garden, he's smothered by a mere whiff of what would go through, he would go through on that cross. Didn't he know he was going to die? Yes, of course. He had told his disciples repeatedly. But now, you see, he's beginning to taste what he will experience on the cross. And it goes far beyond physical torture. It goes far beyond physical death. What is this terrible thing? What is it? It's at the very heart of Jesus' prayer here in the passage we read. He says in verse 36, let this cup, take this cup from me. 
take this cup from me. In the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. It's an image of divine justice poured out on injustice. The prophet Ezekiel put it this way, you will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation, and tear your breasts. Isaiah, in Isaiah 51, God speaks of the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. Those words, those prophecies from Ezekiel and Isaiah describe what Jesus is going through in that garden experience. All his life, all his life, because of his relationship and intimacy, the eternal dance, if you will, with his Father and the Holy Spirit. Whenever he turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love and peace and joy. What happened visibly and audibly at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration happened invisibly and inaudibly every time he prayed. But in the, in the garden, he turns to his father and all he senses before him is wrath. He senses the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. He would become sin. We can say those words so simply. He would become sin. But we have no real idea of what that means. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He would become sin. And holiness is totally repulsed by sin. The prophet Habakkuk puts it this way, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God is the source of all love. God is the source of all life. He's the source of all light. He is the source of all that's coherent. Without him, you have no coherence. Exclusion from God is exclusion from all those things. Exclusion from God is exclusion from life, from light, from love, from a life that's even coherent. It's hell itself. And Jesus began to experience that spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he was separated from his father on that cross. People always wonder, is there separation? Yes! This is the very thing that caused him to shrink back in horror. The very fact that he would be separated from his father. Excluded. Excluded. 
They began to experience only a foretaste of that in the garden, and it staggered him. It staggered him. I'm always saddened and interested when I hear people say, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. I want a God of love. No doubt you've heard that or maybe even said it yourself at some point. You want to exclude all the hard stuff and you just want a God of love. And the problem is that if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. The two go together. You can't separate them. Just think about this. Loving people can get angry. Isn't that true? Not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get at them. Have you ever noticed that? When you see people who are harmed, you see people who are abused, you get angry. And if you see people abusing themselves, you get angry at them out of love. Your sense of love and justice are activated together. They're not in opposition to each other. They come together. If you see people destroying themselves and destroying other people and you don't get angry, it simply means you don't care. You're too absorbed in yourself, too cynical, maybe too hard. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever happens to your beloved and the greater the harm, the more resolute your opposition will be. You see, when we think of God's wrath, we should also think of God's justice. His justice. Those who care about justice get angry when they see justice being trampled on. Is that true? If justice isn't being satisfied, something is wrong. You get angry at that. And we should expect a perfect, just God to do the same. But we don't ponder how much his anger is also a function of his love and his goodness. People say, so much evil, why doesn't God do something? He has done something. He has done it already. Where did he do it? On the cross. This is the whole point of what we're talking about. The Bible tells us that God loves everything that he's made. That's one of the reasons he's angry at what's going on in his creation. He's angry at anyone or anything that is destroying the people and the world that he loves. The Bible says God so loved the world. That's inclusive of all of us. His capacity for love is so much greater than ours. And the cumulative extent of evil in the world is so incredibly vast. The word wrath doesn't really do justice to how God rightly feels when he looks at the world. You recall from Genesis chapter 6, God said evil was so bad he said, I'm sorry, I made man. Whoa. 
So it makes no sense. It makes no sense when you think about it to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil. Angry enough to do something about it, which he has done. Consider this also. If you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. If you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. Think about that. You see, a God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Picture, if you will, on the left, a God who pays nothing. He pays nothing. He makes no investment whatsoever to love you. And picture on the right, the God of the Bible, who becomes, because of his anger and evil, must go to the cross, absorb the debt, pay the ransom, and suffer immense torment. Hmm. How do you know how much the free love God loves you? Or how valuable you are to him or her or it. This God's love is just a concept. It's just a concept. You don't know it at all. You can't know it. This God pays no price in order to love you. How valuable are you to the God of the Bible? Valuable enough that he would go to these depths for you. That's how valuable you are to him. You see, your conception of God's love and of your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. You can't dismiss his wrath. You can't ignore it. You must understand it. Let me ask another question. When the circumstances of life are giving you the desires of your heart, are you content? Yes. Yes, I am. Suffering happens, we might say, when there's a gap. A gap between the desires of my heart and the circumstances of my life. And the bigger the gap, the greater the suffering. I think we can all relate to that. What do you do when that gap gets too wide? Well, one response is to change the circumstances. To get off the path that's taking you into, into suffering. And of course, sometimes this is the right response. Our present circumstances may really have to change. There may be an unhealthy relationship that needs to be ended or put on a different course or medical condition that needs to be treated aggressively. We should not accept all circumstances with a passive fatalism or detachment. Many people have a pattern, however, of dealing, dealing with almost any suffering by getting out of town by breaking promises, by pulling out of relationships. They invariably try to 
go someplace where their desires are satisfied because they consider their desires all important, which makes their circumstances now negotiable. They're willing to do practically anything to avoid suffering. The problem is that life, life circumstances rarely oblige. Have you noticed that? Try that new set of circumstances. And in six months or so, you'll be looking for another new set of circumstances. Buddhism, Hinduism, and the, the Stoics all taught that avoiding suffering has no virtue, has no integrity at all. To say when there's a gap between your desires and your circumstances, change your circumstances violates the very tenets of those faith systems, of those religious thoughts. Rather, they say what you, should, what you need to do is to suppress your desire. Get on top of those desires. Become cool, detached, and dispassionate. Then you can keep your promises. Then you can stay on the path. You see, the circumstances are simply part of your fate. You can do nothing about them. They're part of your fate. While the desires are just illusion. Of course, there are times when we do need to suppress our desires because so often they can be destructive. Isn't that true? But to eliminate all desire is to eliminate our ability to love. And God has made us to love. He's made us to love. When we look at Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he appears at first glance, he appears to be taking the first approach. He's certainly not taking the way of detachment. He's pouring his heart out, isn't he? He's undone. And he's honestly and desperately asking God to change the circumstances, praying that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. He cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He's contending with his father asking him for a way out, asking for another way to rescue us without having to go personally through what he has seen and experienced. But if we look closely, he's actually not taking his circumstances in his own hands. And in the end, he's really obeying. He's obeying, he's relinquishing control over his circumstances and submitting his desires to the will of his father. He says to God, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's wrestling, but he's obeying in love. It would still be possible at this 11th hour, I think, for Jesus to abort his mission, leave us to perish, but he doesn't consider that as an option. He's pleading with the Father to carry out the mission. 
some other way, but he doesn't ask him to abandon it altogether. Why? Because as horrible as the cup is, he knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow before his ultimate desire to spare us. You see, often, I believe, what seems to be our deepest desires are really only our loudest desires. <laughs> you know how, especially when you're in intense pain or maybe in, 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 in place of great temptation, sometimes you just can't think straight. You ever notice that? Sometimes you can't think straight and you, you may turn on the people who love you. You may even make shockingly self-destructive decisions. You may say and do things that you know are not only hurtful, but actually undermine the people and the values that you love the most. But at one of the most, if not the most supreme moments of personal pain in the history of the world, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's not even saying to his father, I think you're wrong, but I'm going to let you win this one. No, he's saying, I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. I know that your desires are ultimately my desires. Do what we both know must be done. And so in doing, Jesus is absolutely obedient to the will of his Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's subordinating his loudest desires, you see, to his deepest desires by putting them in his Father's hands. As if to say, if the circumstances of life do not satisfy my, the present desires of my heart, I'm not going to suppress them. I'm not going to surrender to them in either. I know that they will only be satisfied eventually in the Father. I will trust and obey him, put myself in his hands, and go forward. Jesus doesn't deny his emotions. He doesn't avoid the suffering. He loves into the suffering. Let me say that again. He loves into the suffering. In the midst of the, the suffering, he obeys for the love of the Father and for the love of us. And that love whose obedience is wide and long and high and deep enough to dissolve a mountain of righteous wrath and indignation, that's the love we've been looking for our whole life. There's no other love like the love of God. No other love. No family love, no friend love, no mother love, no spouse love, no romantic love. Nothing, nothing could possibly satisfy us like God's love. All those other kinds of love will let us down. This one never will. Jesus was horrified by what he was about to see 
by what he was about to experience. Part of him wants to do it another way. Part of him wants to give it up, but he doesn't. He stays the course. He loves into the suffering because he loves us. Because he loves his father. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Can we say with him, not my will, but your will be done. Can we say that with him? Only because we know he loves us. He loves us. He will never betray us. He'll never let us down. He'll never lead us down a wrong path. Despite what we may be feeling and thinking, he loves us. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to say, I do want my life to change. I'm going to ask you to say, I want to be certain that my sins are forgiven. I'm going to ask you to say, I want to be certain that if I died tonight, I would go to heaven. I'm going to ask you to make a decision if you haven't already. Make certain that you know Jesus. You know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. I'm going to ask you to make a decision tonight. And if you're ready to make that decision, I want you just to get out of your chair and come right down here. Now, go, go. If you don't know Jesus, come now. Come. Come on. I know there's people who need, need to make this decision. Don't sit there. Don't wait much longer. Come now. Come now. Just get out of your chair. Be the first one. Break the silence. You ready? Who would come? Who would come? I know there's someone. God already told me. Who would come? Come Sunday morning then. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for this great salvation that you have made possible for us. We love you tonight. And I do pray, Father, for anybody sitting in this room tonight who doesn't know Jesus, Lord, that you would speak to them tonight as they lay their head on their pillow and you would assure them of your love. And they would cry out to you and say, Jesus, save me. We commit all these things to you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.